1960, Ruby Bridges was a six-year-old girl in pigtails. And she was the first person of color to integrate the New Orleans public school system. She was the only black student who was assigned to William France Elementary School. On her first day of school, protests erupted. There were threats on her life. White parents pulled their children out of school. And Ruby spent her first day in the principal's office because the administration felt that it would be the safest place for her. On the second day, Ruby went to class. Barbara Henry was the only teacher who was willing to teach Ruby. And she did so for more than a year. She taught in a nearly empty classroom. There was Miss Henry and her desk and Ruby and her desk. Because of the incessant threats on her life and the protests that did not seem to want to die down, Ruby was escorted for the first few months by federal marshals from her mother's car to the front door of the school. And every day, she would walk past and through throngs of people who would scream and taunt and gesture at her. One morning in class, Miss Henry told Ruby that she'd noticed that as she walked through the crowd of people screaming at her, that her lips were moving. And she wanted to know what it was that she said to the people that were around her. Ruby answered, I wasn't talking to them. I was praying for them. Now, usually, usually Ruby would pray in the car before she got to school. But on that particular day, she had, she'd forgotten. And so as she walked among the crowd screaming at her, she prayed this prayer. Please be with me, God, and be with these people too. Forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Ruby Bridges walked from her mother's car into the doors of the school building is in itself an incredible story of courage and faith. It's hard to believe that it took place over half a century ago. It's hard for some of us to even imagine those times, but for others of us, it is a memory. For me, I was awfully young. I certainly, I wasn't even around when she was walking into the school system, but I did grow up during desegregation and integration. And although I don't remember protests and I don't remember screaming crowds, I do remember this. I remember tension. And I was among those students who was pulled out my fourth grade year from the public schools in order to go to private school. It only lasted for a year. And maybe that's the reason I'm not quite as connected with all the goings-on. But, but I know even at that age that there was great tension and stress and strife within our nation. And we've come a long way since then, but we certainly haven't arrived now, my point today, as I, I mentioned Ruby Bridges' story, 
is not so much to talk about segregation or desegregation. It's not so much to talk about the prejudices and injustices that have tarnished our nation. My aim today is to get us all to think about the next step that we must take that will require courage and faith. For many of you, that step won't be anything like the steps that Ruby Bridges had to take from her car into the school or the step that her mother had to take in allowing her child to go to school. For some, those steps are going to be much easier and much less intimidating. But there are people who are sitting out here who know that there are steps that they need to take in their lives. They are being prompted by the Holy Spirit to take a step And they're shaking in their boots. Let me change that. You may be shaking in your boots at the next step that God has for you. A step that will require from you both faith and courage. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help me as I try to communicate your word in the best way that I can. And in light of the story of Ruby Bridges, Lord, I pray that for all of us, we will be able to consider the next step that you have for us, no matter how intimidating it might be. And Lord, I pray knowing that you will give us both the faith and courage to go where you're calling us to go, to say what you're calling us to say, and to do what you're calling us to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you a little background, and then we're going to look at the actual Scripture passage itself that we're going to focus on this morning. Many of you know the story of the Exodus. Kind of know how that came to pass. God's people uh, had gone to Egypt under uh, Joseph, who was, uh, who was there, second to the Pharaoh himself, They'd had land. Well, things deteriorated over the course of time, and they became slaves in Egypt. And they were in Egypt for 430 years. A long, long, long time. And you'll remember that Moses, who had to flee Egypt, was called by God to go back to Egypt with a message of deliverance, to go back to to call on Pharaoh to, to let his people go, to let God's people go. So Moses did that. And I won't go through all of what it took in order for that to happen. But you remember, if you remember anything about the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings, that the children of Israel were were hard-headed. They were stiff-necked. They were rebellious people. And because of that, an entire generation had to die out. That was the discipline. That was the judgment that God pushed upon the people that an entire generation had to die out. They couldn't enter the promised land. And so we fast forward 40 years. The generation is gone. Moses, their leader, has died. Now Joshua stands in his place. They're a stone's throw from the promised land. And that's where we want to pick up our story. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Joshua chapter 3. Start at the left. It'll be easier. Joshua chapter 3. And we're going to look at this story. We're going to pick it up now that they are on the edge of the promised land after having spent 430 years in captivity and 40 years in the wilderness wandering around. 
They're now about to receive the promise that God gave to them and take that first step into the promised land. Joshua chapter 3. And I'll encourage you to keep your Bibles open because as we did last week, we kind of break the passage down a little bit and look at it piece by piece rather than reading the entire thing. Joshua chapter 3. And we will start with verse 1. And this is what the Word of the Lord says. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites... Set out, set out from Shatim, and they went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went through the camp, giving orders to the people, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know the way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits, between you and the ark, and do not go near it. As we said before, previous generation had passed away. Moses had passed away, but God's promise remained true. He had a land for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, a place that he was going to take them to settle. Also, what hadn't changed was, was God being with them. He hadn't turned his back on them. He was still with them. He was still caring for them. He was still meeting their needs. Now it says here something about the Ark of the Covenant. Now this is not Noah's Ark. Okay, same word, different meaning here. And uh, this may not be exactly what you've seen on the Indiana Jones movie, but it would be something similar. What was the Ark of the Covenant and why is that significant here in this passage. Well, let's just take a moment to think about what that is. The Ark of the Covenant was constructed under Moses' direction while they were still at Mount Sinai where they got the Ten Commandments. The Ark was basically a box. It was two and a half cubits in length, one and a half cubits in height, and one and a half cubits in width. I'm going to let you do the math. But as best as Bible scholars can figure, a cubit was about 18 inches. So you can write that down and you can do the math a little bit later. So it wasn't huge. It wasn't, wasn't a massive container. It was made of acacia wood and it was covered with gold inside and out. At the base, there were four rings that were attached. And into those rings, acacia poles covered with gold would be inserted so that the ark could be carried because you didn't want to touch it. And so the ark was carried on those poles. The lid of the ark was cast out of pure gold. And inside the ark, inside the ark was a golden jar of manna. Remember the manna that God had provided for them uh, as they journeyed day in and day out. The staff of Aaron, the priest, that had budded a miracle in and of itself. And the Ten Commandments. This is what was in the ark. This is what they, they carried with them. On, on the lid of the ark, there were cast two cherubs, two angels. And the angels were facing one another. And their wings came up and kind of met there in the middle. It was a very majestic, golden uh, uh, box. But it was more than that because this is what God said. God said he would let his spirit dwell, his glory dwell with the people. 
and that this would be the seat. This would be the center. Now, that doesn't mean that God was isolated at one place at one time, but God, in a unique way, was going to allow himself to dwell in the midst of his people. And when Moses wanted to hear from God, he would go into the tabernacle before the ark, and God would speak to him. Now, again, it's not a big cosmic radio. It's not a cosmic battery. It's none of this crazy stuff that you hear. It was a golden box that had a specific purpose to hold some very important items that would that for people would would be a remembrance of how God God's power and how God could protect them. But it was also the place where God said, My presence will be there with you. And so it's a constant reminder of God's presence, God being in their midst. Wherever the ark went, that's where they went. Let's pick up verse 5. Let's just look at verse 5. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Let me tell you, when when you read Joshua chapter 3, you're going to get kind of caught up in the stuff that happens a little bit later. But this is significant. Don't lose sight of this verse. In your Bibles, underline it, highlight it, star it, whatever you need to do in order to remember this verse. This verse is significant. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. God was going to show himself off in a mighty and powerful, unmistakable way. And Joshua said, you need to be ready for that. And let me just step over here to say this. I believe with all my heart that God has great and wonderful things that he wants to do in your life, in this church, in this community. And I believe that one of the reasons we miss what God wants to do is because we've not prepared ourselves for what God wants to do. Consecrate yourself. Listen, God's going to do something mighty. God's going to do something awesome. So consecrate yourself. What does the word consecrate mean? That's kind of a big theological word. It basically means to set yourself apart, to dedicate yourself, to make yourself holy in the sense of separating yourself. In other words, this is a time to look at your life and to say, is my life Shaped by the world, or is my life shaped by the will of God? Are my priorities shaped by the world, or are my priorities shaped by the will of God? Am I carrying around inside me unconfessed sin and broken relationships? Am I carrying inside myself overwhelming guilt? If so, I need to deal with those things so that when God shows up to do that mighty thing that he wants to do, that I don't miss it and I'm not excluded. Consecrate yourself. Prepare yourselves for what God is going to do. God had prepared a miracle. And the people needed to prepare themselves to receive it. Let's pick it up with verse 6. Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. And so they took it up and they went ahead of them. 
And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests to carry the Ark of the Covenant. When you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go in and stand in the river. Now the priests, a certain segment of the priests, were given the responsibility to carry the Ark of the Covenant. Here Joshua gives to the priests their marching orders, go and stand in the river, which on the surface doesn't sound too weird, but we need a little more information to figure out exactly what's going on here. So, so come on back with me into verse 9, and let's see what's going on. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you'll know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. Should have got one of y'all to read that. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. That's, if you go on and read, you'll discover why, and I'll just leave that to you this afternoon to keep reading in Joshua. You'll figure out why those 12 were selected. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. Now, some of you who are familiar with the, the whole plight of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings, you'll probably remember that there was something that happened on the beginning of their journey that also involved a body of water that they couldn't pass. And that was the parting of the Red Sea. But remember, a whole generation has died out. For many of them, the story of the parting of the Red Sea was just that. It was a story. It was not something they had personally experienced or at least didn't have firsthand knowledge about. It was a story. It was something they're, they're, they, that they were told by their parents, told by their grandparents. They hadn't experienced it themselves. And so this was going to be a significant thing for them to experience. And they were going to need it because they were getting ready to cross into a land filled with people who were going to be hostile to them. And they were going to need to know that God was with them. And so God was going to do something in order to prove to them that he was with them in an unmistakable way. Now, the priest in all their priestly robes carrying the Ark of the Covenant went, and when their feet touched the water, it said that God was going to make the river stop flowing. And as a matter of fact, it did, and it backed up all the way to a city up the Jordan called Adam. Backed up in a heap, water just piling up, just like it was behind a dam so that the people could walk across on dry land. Now you go, okay, well, that's cool. It gets cooler. Start reading. Look, verse 14. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Look at this, verse 15. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who were carrying the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a great heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. 
while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So that the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all the Israelites passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. The Jordan River runs between the, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. There's a drop over a course of 65 miles uh, of about 600 feet over that course, which means it flows pretty swiftly. At the points where the Israelites would have crossed, normally it flows fairly shallow, maybe 180 feet across at its widest point, and water speed maybe about four miles an hour, something that, that a person could wade across without a problem. And so you look at this and go, well, you know, if that were the case, that'd be easy, you know. That'd be easy for God to do. But God happened to bring them there at the time of the harvest when the water was at flood stage. It wasn't moving at four miles an hour. It was moving at ten miles an hour. It was no longer shallow. It was deep. And it was very likely twice as wide. It was a raging river. And now... This is when God chooses to bring the people to the edge to say, we're going to go across here. Now, let me also give you a little more background because rivers historically and geographically have been used as barriers. The division of of some of our states are marked. The edge is marked by rivers. Many countries, the property of that country, the Their their boundaries are marked by rivers. And so rivers became boundaries. And this certainly was a boundary for the people of Israel. God said he was going to give them possession of land on the other side. Okay? So it was a boundary. It was something that was standing in the way of them getting to where God wanted them to go. Rivers were also a source of of life. uh, Fresh water. Fresh fish. And for many religions, rivers were sacred. If you remember the Nile River, big, had a big thing to do with, with Egyptian worship because the Nile would overflow its banks and would fertilize the land with the silt that went out. And therefore, they worshipped the river. Guess, guess what the worshipers of Baal worshipped? Fertility. And guess what? Most of the people over on the other side of the river worshipped Baal. And so for them, the Jordan River was sacred. Because it fertilized the land, especially here at this flood stage. You can imagine, think of it. You're a Canaanite. You're on the other side of the river. You know this big group of peoples. More than 600,000 people is coming to come to your land. And you know that you've heard stories about the things that have happened, that, that their God has sustained them. And now they get to the edge of the river, and it's a flood stage. And they got to be thinking, uh, nanny, nanny, boo, boo, you can't touch me. That their God, Baal, had brought the river to such a point as to turn those stinking Israelites back. So they're thinking victory is theirs. And the Israelites are thinking, there ain't no way we're getting across that anytime soon. That's the context of what's taking place here. But God was faithful to his promise. He had the power to back up his word. And when the priest stepped into that raging river, the water stopped flowing. 
and the people, more than 600, crossed into the promised land on dry ground. Now, you may be saying, Pastor, that, that's, a, that's a good story, but why is that significant for me? What, what, what importance does it have in my life? I'm glad you asked. The priests were called to put on their best robes and to take up the sacred ark and to walk into a raging river. Now, if you remember with me what happened prior to the crossing of the Red Sea, as the people camped there all night, the wind blew like crazy. In other words, they knew God, bless you, they knew God was up to something because the wind just kept blowing and blowing and blowing and blowing during the night. There's no evidence that anything like this happened at the Jordan. In fact, what, the, what they would have experienced that night before they crossed the river was just laying there with the roaring of the water as their constant companion. They'd have gone to sleep with the, with the water roaring. They'd have woken up with the water roaring as the river was in flood stage, just passing by very, very quickly by them. Imagine the faces of the priests when Joshua comes up and says, Hey guys, here's God's plan. Y'all go get the ark, get dressed, get prepared, clean yourselves up, go get the ark, and I want you to go stand in that. That's all that we hear reported here. <laughs> That's it. He didn't go, okay, let's, let's lay out the plan. Let me tell you what God's up to. No, God said you need to go get dressed, you need to get the ark, you need to go stand in the river. And so uh, they did it. But you can imagine the conversation on the way to get their clothes on. You can imagine their faces when they saw, you know, because they hadn't experienced anything like that wind blowing all night. They hadn't experienced anything. There's nothing to indicate to them that anything was going to be different when they got to the river. But they did it. And you can imagine that the first step into the water was probably the hardest step. It would be because as soon as their feet hit the water, God stopped the flowing of the river. You also remember that prior to this miracle, God had called the people, told you don't forget this, to prepare themselves, to consecrate themselves for an act to be done by God on their behalf. Now, in light of what we have coming up in February with our Choose Life Revival, our evangelistic event that we are going to have here. I want you to remember this story because this story also tells us to get prepared. To get prepared, to consecrate ourselves. Listen, there's not a one of us in here who does not want God to do something big and awesome and unmistakably with God's fingerprints on it. We all want that. But what we, let's face it, what we really want is for God to do it so we can sit back in our lazy boy and watch it. But I'm here to tell you, if you really expect God to do something great and powerful, then God is calling on you today, this morning, to prepare yourself for it. 
How do you do that? How do you consecrate yourself? How do you set yourself apart for this purpose that God has in your life? For some of you, it's dealing with unconfessed sin in your life. You know it's there. You sweep it under the rug. You hope nobody notices. It's like that ugly dog contest. Have you, ever, have you seen the pictures of that? Man, I tell you, my dog's kind of cute. But not everybody's dog is cute. And you'll see the pictures every year. The ugliest dog in the world. And these things look like they have been hit with a bus. These are some ugly, ugly critters. Now, if I had something like that, if I were having guests coming over, I'm going, okay, look, Fido, you got to go stay in that room. You're going to scare the children. Okay, but when the guests left, then I'd pull little ugly Fido out and I'd play with Fido at that point because, you know, I can tolerate it, although I don't want my friends to have to tolerate it. That's kind of what we do with our unconfessed sin. We know it's ugly. We know it's repulsive and we hide it from everybody else. But we kind of toy with it. We play with it. We, we tolerate it because it's ours. And so maybe in your life, the preparation needs to be a thorough examination to say, listen, am I harboring any sin in my heart? Do I have unconfessed sin that I haven't dealt with, that needs to be dealt with, so that I can see God move in the way He wants to move? Maybe what I need to do, instead of repenting myself, maybe I need to offer someone else forgiveness. They, I've been hurt. I've been really slammed by somebody and God's been, he's, he's had it on my heart that I need to deal with that. that. That this bitterness that I'm carrying around inside me, that it's not healthy for me and it's certainly not doing anything to improve that relationship. And, and I know because God has prompted me that, that I need to go and offer forgiveness to someone who's hurt me. And perhaps that's what needs to take place in your life in order to see something, that God do something greater in your life. Maybe it is that God's calling you to remove something in your life that hinders your nearness to Him. It may not be a bad thing. It may not be a sin thing. But you recognize, you know what? The, I spend way too much time plopped down in front of the, of the TV. And I realize that it's just dead time. It's, it's useless time. But, but I also know that, that I've been told to redeem the time. I've been told that by God that, that every moment that I live is precious and that I need to use those moments in ways that honor Him. Maybe that's what it is in my life. Maybe it's TV or maybe it's video games or, or maybe it's the Internet or, or whatever it is. But there's something to stand in the way of you getting nearer to God. It's kind of taking His place. It's where you want to spend your time. And maybe now God's saying, hey, in order to prepare yourself you, you need to deal with that. You need to cut that off. You need to, to limit that. You need to put some reins on it. Very simply, I'm calling on you and I'm calling on me that we might examine ourselves and ask the question, are we really ready for God to show up? And what do I need to do now in order to be ready for God to show up. Get prepared. Consecrate yourself. And the other admonition this morning is to take the next step. No matter where you are in your relationship with God, no matter how long that you've walked with Jesus, 
I promise you there's always a next step. God never gets you to the point and goes, okay, that's it. You're good. There's always a next step. Henry Blackaby uh, wrote in his book, Experiencing God, you cannot stay where you are and go with God. God is always on the move. He's always taking us to deeper levels of spirituality. He's always taking us into the lives of other people. He's always taking us into ministry, into missions, and sometimes in places that aren't very comfortable for us. So what is it that God is calling you to do now? For some of you, it may simply be to receive his son as Savior. You've never taken that step. You know you should. You know it's possible, but you, you just never have taken, taken that step It may be fear, it may be anxiety, it may be doubt, but you know God's calling you. Put your foot into the river. Take that next step. For some of you, it may be baptism, and I don't know what you're afraid of. Maybe you're expecting, okay, God, hey, listen, if when I'm dunked, if the water separates, I'll know it was you, which kind of defeats the purpose of baptism. I'm not sure what you're scared of. I had a lady in the church in Savannah. She was, really, she was deathly afraid of her head going under the water. And then she and her husband had a daughter that was growing up and decided they wanted a swimming pool in the backyard. This woman's scared of water. But her daughter wanted it and her husband wanted it, so they built a pool in their backyard. He was our Sunday school teacher. We spent a lot of time splashing around in there in Sunday school parties. Well, the wife never got in. One day she was out. She was just cleaning the pool and she fell in. I kind of think the Holy Spirit pushed her. (laughs) Because the next Sunday she comes to me and she says, Listen, that wasn't nearly as bad as I thought. I'm ready to be baptized. (laughs) So, okay, listen, the Holy Spirit may be pushing you. Listen, it may be baptism. It may be church membership. That may be the next step. It's really not as scary as you think it is. Of course, it may be something else. You may be sharing your faith with a coworker. It may be taking that step to be generous in your giving, generous in your sharing of what God has given to you. The next step may be a mission trip. The next step may simply be serving your next door neighbor. What I'm saying here, if the Holy Spirit is prompting you, take the next step. Even if the rivers are raging, and even if you don't understand, take the next step. Because I promise you this, if God brings you to it, then he will get you through it. And I don't mean that as some simple bumper sticker theology. It is true. If it is God's will in your life, then God will make the way for it to take place in your life. He's promised not to leave us, not to forsake us, not to abandon us in our time of need. And one of the reasons we don't see him work more often is because we aren't prepared for it. So folks, let's get prepared. Let's take that next step. And may God give us the courage and the faith to walk the way he's called us to walk.